This is a 3 Uncanny 4 production. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. The night that they closed the deal on going private, my uncle threw a huge party. All I remember was tons and tons and tons of people just congratulating us, acting like we had gone from rich to like next level. And I think it was that night that my cousins might have said to me, we're like the, the richest family in the world. I'm Arielle Levy, and this is the Just Enough Family. The property and casualty industry was very predictable. It would have three strong years, three weak years, three strong years. The cycle was very clear. In 1978, even though the company is doing very well, it's the beginning of a down cycle. The stock is way down. And Saul says, this is the time for us to take the company private. We're going to buy all of the stock because in 1982, this should turn and we should make a gazillion dollars. The market doesn't know that it's going to turn. We know it's going to turn. The company went private just as the greed is good decade was getting underway. It was a time of Reagan in the White House, Dallas and Dynasty on television, and Saul Steinberg making a fortune. And into his life walked a beautiful woman with a weird name, Gayfred. She was, as Tina Brown wrote in Vanity Fair, fresh blood on Park Avenue. Greyhound slim with a postmodern haircut and reckless shoulders. Gayford embodied, quote, the new money, the new flash. Here's Saul's daughter, Laura. So my mother would have been happy with a white picket fence in a little house in a, you know, in a little town, whatever. Then Laura was sort of the antithesis of that. She was glamorous, but kind of in that New York City, almost you know, wild underground. It, it was a Halston kind of life with Lara. Do you know what I mean? I know that exactly kind of, what you mean. Euro. Yeah, it was Halston. It was Warhol. It was all of that kind of world. Celebrities and drugs and rock and roll, the whole thing. And then Gayford came into his life and it was the 80s in New York. And he had been dating all these young girls, but they weren't sophisticated enough or even serious enough in a way. They certainly weren't smart enough. Gifford was and is incredibly smart. I was always anti-Gifford. Really? Oh, I, I was 
afraid. Yeah, I was petrified that she was evil. Why? Why were you afraid of that? Well, she has a very starry past. She came from Canada, a small town. Her father was a postal guy. He was actually a clerk with the telephone company. She married her sweetheart, and they moved to South Africa. But then she met Norman Johnson, a millionaire in the oil field pipe supply business in New Orleans. They got married. They had a son, Rain, and then he ran into horrendous tax problems. And then he jumped off a building and committed suicide. So I knew about her past, and I was concerned that Saul was just another stepping stone. I think I really met her for my 21st birthday. My dad gave me a party at the Temple of Dender at the Met. Wow. Gayford organized it. They were just dating at that point. Yeah, black tie. It was this very glamorous party with tables around the top of the Temple of Dendor. And the cocktails were in the American wing. We had sort of a receiving line where people walked through and said hi. And, um, and I think a lot of them had never met her before. It was probably her coming out party more than anything else. When I think about it now, she was as glamorous as could be. Do you remember what she was wearing? I actually have the photos. I can look if you want it. I am curious. Um, she, she was in a strapless, black, velvet, gorgeous dress with big earrings and her hair sort of back and up. And she had this very sort of angelic face. She was very tall. And she was beautiful. I didn't like her. As far as I was concerned, she was the flavor of the month. I actually thought that Saul was never going to get married again because he had Barbara, who was just awful, and then Lara, and that ended up being so bad. And I thought, he's just not going back to the frying pan. And then this person comes up from New Orleans, and the next thing I know, they're living together. And I thought, you know, whoa, we're suspects. She's beautiful and she's had a bunch of husbands. Right. And she shops too. Right. You know, I think anybody would have been suspect and I didn't know her. But I think Saul, you know, recognized her goodness and her decency because not only did she get him, she brought his family back together. They were really splintered at that point. She kind of was like, no, no. All this bad boy stuff, the drinking, the being overweight, whatever drugs there were, all this stuff, that's over. And somehow they became the center of what I think at the time women's were daily named Nouvelle Society. So he went from like, say anything, cocaine, parties, to this kind of pillar of a certain kind of yes. respectability. Yes, yes. The part that didn't change, just to be clear about him, and I really mean this, that he was always extremely smart, interested in a million things, reading a ton, collecting art because he loved it, not because this was way before collecting art was a thing. If you sat down and you wanted to talk to him, you would have loved him. The first time I met Saul, there was sort of an instant attraction. That is Gayford Steinberg. He was like Russell Crowe in The Gladiator. He was like a buccaneer, handsome, lively, but 
also with all these other facets to him. He, he wasn't like a regular businessman you would sit next to and think, oh my God, how am I going to get through this dinner? What did you talk about the first night when you met? He was interviewing me about my business. At that point, I had an oil field supply business. And I don't know whether he just didn't believe that I had it, but he, when we had dinner again, he had done a Dun and Bradstreet on me. And he said, you know, I, I really didn't understand how a couple of women could be in the oil field business selling steel pipe, but I checked up on you and you do. And I noticed that you're actually quite successful. How did you get into the oil pipe business in the first place? It was during the Carter administration and they were pushing women's own businesses and no women did this. There was a shortage of steel pipe. Ariel, it didn't matter really who was selling it. It's if you had a way to get an allocation and we, we were women and that was an advantage, not a disadvantage. You know, a lot of selling is entertaining and if you think of these purchasing agents in these big oil companies, nobody really paid attention <laughs> to these guys and here, Two beautiful young women two, come well, in. Well, yeah. that's nice of you to say, but we were actually interested in what they had to say. So they had this captive audience and they enjoyed every moment of it. Very hard work, a lot of travel, but it was lots of fun. Liz, for her part, was dazzled by Gayfred. And really, so was the rest of Manhattan. I thought she was absolutely gorgeous. Like my sister and I, like basically like almost girl crush. Like we couldn't believe how pretty. And then Gayford just became like almost more famous than my uncle. Like it's weird that you're asking me this today. I, I was scrolling Instagram and New York Social Diary for some reason was doing like throwback pictures. And there's a picture and it's Gayford, but my uncle is there. They're together. Like my uncle's holding her hand and it says Gayford Steinberg at the New York Public Library Lions Dinner, 1987. And I thought, oh, that's funny. They're not even mentioning my uncle. Like, she became a really huge thing. She became a star. She became a knit girl. A superstar. And my mother always says the first time she noticed, my family had a, you know, a really well-positioned box. Maybe it was at the New York Philharmonic. Maybe it was at Carnegie Hall. Who knows? At one of those places. And it must have been opening night. And so my mother is with Gayfred. And they walk in. And it's still... Even in the early 80s, a lot of the socialites were old school wasps. Like think about like Brooke Astor and the Vanderbilts. The old guard. The old guard, the Nouvelle Society. So the old guards there, whom my mother has never felt part of, she's not part of it. They all look down on my family. They're not looking to be friends with them. My mother said she'll never forget this moment that she walked in with Gayford and she felt like there was almost a hush over the entire, let's say it was Carnegie Hall and that kind of every head turned and she felt like everybody was whispering, that's Gayford Steinberg, that's Gayford Steinberg. And that she was like, holy shit, what is going on here? In all our years of being Steinbergs, this was next level. Gayford was like a real entree. I didn't know, I don't know if my uncle was trying to enter prior to that, but it happened and there was no daylight anymore. And in fact, those people became Gayford's like best friends and my uncles too, like they're best friends. And so then the Jews had stormed the castle. Yes. And was it a big deal within your family that she wasn't Jewish? No, because she converted before their marriage. Every woman that he married converted before they got married. Jewish thing was really important to my uncle. I didn't actually, when I met him, understand what that meant because I had no experience with Jewish life or Jews. 
or even anti-Semitism. But I just kind of fell in love with the tenets of Judaism and the idea of sort of living your best life here and now. It's not looking to the future. It's a very ethical religion in, in my view. Saul, he really loved being Jewish. I, I mean, I, and I love that about him. He didn't mind being an outsider, which I thought was interesting. Being an insider, you know, seemed to be the place to be. But it didn't really bother him, that aspect of doing something just a little bit harder, the kind of salmon swimming upstream, which had a certain allure to it. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. There was a big announcement on Wall Street today. Investor Saul Steinberg said that he plans to buy out Walt Disney Productions. There were very few deals we really wanted. Disney's, of course, was an exception. One case of green mail that's going on right now involves Disney, with its profitable amusement parks, its library of film classics, its real estate holdings, its new movies like Splash, Disney is considered far more valuable than the price of its stock would indicate. Somebody brought us Disney and done a huge amount of work. They went through every division and the numbers were through the roof. It looked like a no-brainer to us that we, you could make a gazillion dollars. So we bought a ton of stock. Saul Steinberg, who heads a company called the Reliance Group, bought up more than four million shares of Disney stock. Disney is fighting back. We made it very clear that we wanted to own it. Disney didn't feel that way. Walt Disney Productions won the battle against an unwelcome takeover, but at a terrific cost, $325 million. Money, money, money. Paid to this man, Saul Steinberg, a New York investor who's often called a green mailer. This was Steinberg's seventh successful green mail attempt in less than five years. He has made about $75 million by threatening takeovers, then selling his stock back to the threatened companies. I remember like one of my cousins had said that during the Disney thing, every day when my Uncle Saul would be taking him to school in the morning, and there'd be so many reporters waiting outside of 740 to ask my uncle, like, what's going on? What's it? And then he said, all my uncle would ever say is, you see this, I have an eight-year-old son. We love Disney World. We'd love to own it. We just love Disney World. And my cousin always said, well, that's just what I thought. We love Disney World. In our family, it was almost like this, like, total opposite world view of what everybody was saying about us all the time. 
I don't think he ever intended to buy Disney. I think Saul Steinberg's intent from the very beginning was to try to boost up the price of Disney stock so he could make a very profitable trade. The price of the company's stock plunged $14 in the last two days. Steinberg was apparently the only winner. He was not risk averse at all. I can remember him saying to me, I never worry about that because I can always make money. You know, what an extraordinary thing to say. But he had that sort of confidence. We were somewhere and there was a Flying Tigers airplane on the runway, this great cargo airline that was basically going down the drain. And he thought about buying Flying Tigers. Suddenly, he and another person are fighting their way on the board. The whole airline was turned around and in the end, FedEx bought it. I looked at the same airplane. I didn't decide to buy the company or even think about it, but that was just how his mind worked. I've always been a little bit more measured than that. I mean, if there was going to be a new painting to be bought, I would think, well, first of all, where are we going to put it? Do we really need it? To Saul, that was never a consideration. He was very passionate about collecting art. There was never an old master painting of an ugly old man that he didn't love and uh, never worried, is it going to fit in the elevator? No, we'll just take the window out. It could be put through the window into the living room. I was just much more cautious. Even though you had all those fabulous parties, those over-the-top parties? I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe that was my extravagance. Which was the best one? Which was your favorite? Well, I think Saul's 50th birthday party it got a lot of attention in the press, which I wasn't exactly happy about, but nonetheless, it happened. Anyway, he was completely delighted. We just made our tennis court into a tent. It was like a Flemish eating hall and had some of his old master paintings copied and... Painted on the tent. They were just replicas of his, you know, just framed replicas of his paintings. And he had nothing to do with it. He was totally surprised. And it was quite magical. Gayford is leaving out a detail or two. Here's Saul and Bob's sister, Linda. So you pull in and there was this tent. And let's say this is the tent. Yeah. So behind you would be models depicting a famous master painting. But they were real. And there'd be another one there, and another one there, and another one there. And all night, we had dinner with these real people being part of these master paintings. There were live birds chirping in gilded cages. There were centerpieces overflowing with pearls. There was beluga caviar and a five-tiered gold and silver leaf cake rolled out on a platform by two children dressed as cherubs. Guests included Barbara Walters, CBS CEO Larry Tisch, and Senator Alphonse D'Amato. Liz Smith called it the party of the decade. And Gayfred was the queen of this kind of party. Big, lavish, creative, unforgettable. My mom's entertaining game is on a different level. I mean, for real. That's Gayfred's son, Rain, whom Saul adopted after he married her. Rain also converted to Judaism. And for his bar mitzvah, Gayford rented out the nightclub Palladium and recreated Rain's room on a giant scale. The party ended with a pillow fight on a massive replica of Rain's bed with gigantic custom-made sheets. 
it was wild beyond normal comprehension. I mean, there's a hilarious, I forget which magazine, where there's a picture of my mom and Saul and dad um, in the living room. And my mom looks like Marie Antoinette. It was in Town and Country magazine. And the title was Barony on Park Avenue. You would meet crazy people. Like, I remember coming home and I think dad was talking to Henry Kissinger and I saw Itzhak Perlman play in the apartment. Um, I mean, I think Robin Williams, he did stand-up. We had a a Bush re-election party in the house and Bush was there. Just like crazy, crazy things. I just felt like my parents knew everybody. You know, when I was younger, if I wanted to go to Studio 54, I would just call my dad or my uncle's assistant. And they would just call Ian Schrager's office or Steve Rubell's office and put me on the list. Or when Hard Rock Cafe opened in New York City, and it was such a big deal. My parents got me the Hard Rock Cafe membership card, which meant you could just cut the line, go in. I know how crazy that sounds now that that could be important. It's hilarious. But it was. So I always felt very like doors are open. We had a box at the Yankees, courtside seats at the Knicks, great seats at the Rangers. We had the best freaking things at all of these things. The first hockey game I went to, we were taken down into the locker room of the teams. The goalie gave me his stick, and that's what I thought was like attending a hockey game. And it was, everything was like that. It was ridiculous. We had the best box at the U.S. Open. And the only people we were surrounded by were tennis royalty and famous people. The box next to us, hilariously, was the Trump box. So my sister and I were allowed to go sometimes, not a lot. I didn't like tennis at all, at all. But going to U.S. Open and sitting in those seats was like being royalty. To the point where, like, everybody knew, like, I remember once, I don't know if you've ever been to the U.S. Open, but I, uh, like, uh-uh. Okay, so if you'd gotten up from your seat to go get a Coke or something, and you wanted to come back, if they were playing, there's, like, this little gate up, and they'd be, like, you know, after she serves. So I remember once I was running from having done that to try to get back to the box, but I got caught in that moment where you're not allowed to come. So the gate closed, and I must have sort of, like, looked annoyed. I mean, not terribly annoyed, just, like, you know, I didn't feel like standing out there. And the person standing next to me, who was a stranger, like I, to this day, I have no idea who it was, said, well, even a Steinberg has to wait. And I remember I was like, what? Even a Steinberg has stayed in my mind like that whole time because the person said it really meanly, really sing-songy. And I realized there was always this weird dual thing in my life of like people like us and like they know who we are and there's something really cool about that. And people hate us who don't even know me or anything about me. Like, that person, like, has hatred dripping from him. But the Steinbergs rarely encountered friction. There was this guy, his name was Don McGuire. And he was what we called, like, he was like our head of security. I I don't even understand what that means. What it actually translated to for us was that he just made things disappear and made everything happen. So if we got off our plane, or even if we flew commercial, but that was rare, When we got to the airport, no matter what was going on, he would just be there. He would just be there and he would whisk us through like all lines, everything. It was just not even a question of ever waiting in a line or going through any sort of security or any sort of friction whatsoever. And beyond that, like everything. Like when I was at Brown, I got a bunch of like parking tickets and I called Don McGuire and he made them go away. Jane, will you tell me about Don McGuire? (laughs) He was a magician. 
Oh my God, that's so funny. He was like, what did he look like? He was literally like Lee Schreiber. I mean, he didn't look like that, but he was like a fixer. Like there was nothing that he couldn't take care of. Like you kill someone, Don McGuire. I remember there was like, when I was in my 20s, there was some guy who was stalking me. It's like the older brother of someone I had gone to high school with. And he started stalking me. Like he was like sending me letters and calling me all the time. And I like actually filed a police report and they ignored it. So I called Don McGuire and he went to this guy's house and like scared the shit out of him and was like, next time I won't be so nice. One weekend, President's Day weekend, my father, my sister, and I were going to um, Palm Beach. And for some reason, my father and I flew down there first and my sister was meeting us. Maybe she was working. We're in our 20s. Uh, my father and I get down there. The next day, there's another horrible storm in New York. My sister gets to the airport and it's bedlam. She's like, it's absolutely bedlam. All flights are getting canceled. There's one flight that is getting out to Florida. It's not her flight. And she calls my father, like hysterically crying. And um, he's like, now, don't worry. She said that she got a call like 10 minutes later from my father that basically said, you know, go to gate F. You're going to be met there by so-and-so. Don't worry. So she said she goes to that gate. She gets on the plane with the handler. The handler turns to the person who's sitting in 1A and says, this isn't your seat. And the person in 1A is like, I'm in the seat. It's my seat. And they were like, it was your seat. It's not your seat anymore. And that person is just off the plane and my sister's in that seat. And this is a thousand percent true. Yeah, I know. You know what I mean? And that's the way we thought of our life. Like that was just the way. So when somebody said to you, like, even a Steinberg has to wait, you were probably like, that is not accurate. I was probably thinking, where's Don McGuire? Does he see this gate? Because this isn't right. Because he's going to break it down. Yeah. And whoever just told you that is going to get <laughs> both neat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was that really weird, surreal element to my life the swirling around of like nothing could ever happen to us because they're just layers of people that work for us that are making things go away or not be a problem or just fixing it. Fixing, 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 nonstop. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. We were living very big, as, as big as you probably can live, and I knew there were issues. In other words, I was so aware of the fact that this could come to a screeching halt. So you'd think I would have stopped, but I didn't. And I didn't spend to be a big shot. I liked fancy cars, I liked this, I liked that. I mean, I, I just liked it. I wasn't trying to impress anybody. I really wasn't. I mean, I'd Saul and I come from two different schools on that. You know, I just liked it. And once I got a taste of it, 
it was hard to go back. I just felt like they were both unhappy fundamentally. And so my dad would hide with his cars and, you know, you know what I'm going to get? I'm going to get the Jaguar that doesn't come in convertible yet and then turn it into a convertible. Like, they were just coming up with, like, crazy shit to spend money on. You know what? We lived here for five years. Let's move. Just because maybe we'll find happiness if we move again. My father and I used to have lunch a lot. I used to have lunch with he and my uncle a lot because they had a private dining room in their like offices. And, but one day he was like, no, no, let's go out for lunch. So we go out for lunch, just the two of us. And I must have been like 23 or 24. And he said something like, you know, my life, Liz, my life has just gotten very predictable. And I was like, no, Dad, you know, what do you mean by that? And he's like, I don't know, you know, Park Avenue, Lily Pond Lane in East Hampton, you know, Aspen. It just... It's very predictable. And I was like, well, I mean, I don't know, predictable in like a great way, right, Dad? I mean, that's like great. I don't know, those sound all like really good addresses to me. And he was like, I don't know, it just feels boring, feels predictable. And I, I remember like it stayed with me, it kind of unnerved me. Like I didn't even know, I didn't know what to make of it at the time. I guess he must have started to feel like this wasn't the life he wanted to be living. But again, I'm telling his story, not mine. But, I, um, but from my perspective, I remember thinking like, is something changing? Like, this did not feel like something my father would have said. My parents came to my college graduation and clearly bad shit was going on. It was just the weirdest, weirdest weekend. And I remember like Liz and I being like, what is going on? And then I drove straight out here to the Hamptons and I park my car, I walk into the house and my parents are like, we have to tell you something. And. They were like, we're getting divorced. And I had been home from college for about five seconds. It was a horrible, horrible time. And then my mom was, was My mom was sobbing every day. Yeah, he was gone. He was gone. That was it. What was the reason they gave you? I don't know. Maybe that they just weren't that happy. They just weren't that happy. You know, and I was like, you are? I mean, who, I, I think I was more like, who's happy? Like, right. what do you mean you're not that happy? Like, you're together. Like, in my mind, they were also, I thought they were ancient. Like, they were ancient to me. In fact, my mother kept telling me, and she was 46 or 47, that it was different from my father. You know, he could date anyone, but that she just couldn't date. And if I'd say, what do you mean you can't date? She'd say, because I'm just, I'm too old. I'm too old to date. And I a thousand percent agreed with her. I was kind of like, how could he do this to you? Like, how could he leave an old lady, basically? <laughs> like, that's just mean. Like, couldn't they have just stuck it out for three more years? They'd both be dead. He cut to, I'm 54, and I'm certain that if I needed to, I could date. But yes, I completely thought that. I never thought they were going to get divorced, ever. I mean, that's when Liz and I became close. Like, I, that really threw me for a loop. I was sort of like, I don't know, this marriage just sort of works and we're a family unit. Like, I feel like, what the fuck was my childhood? Even though you were a family unit that was so scary that you had an out-of-body experience until you were like, you know, yes, 18. Yes, I still just thought, this is my weird backbone, whatever it is, and it's never going away. Looking back, I wonder if all this stuff wouldn't have happened if my parents hadn't gotten divorced. Not the cancer, because I'm not sure how that would have prevented me getting cancer. I don't think it would have. Wouldn't have. But I do wonder about the money. I do.
the Just Enough family is co-created and written by executive producer Melinda Shopson, that's me, and Ariel Levy. Our editor is David Klagsbrim, and our other executive producer is Laura Mayer. We had additional help from archival researcher Laura Coxon, fact-checker David Kurtaba, transcriber Elijah Grossman, and assistant editor Allison Sirota. Our music supervisor is Jasmine Flott, and the show is mixed by Christopher Cook. For a transcript and full credits, please visit our website, thejustenoughfamily.com. <laughs>